0: All right, let's open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We are continuing uh, our look at chapters 12 and 13, and we're looking at the big idea of spiritual warfare 101. This is our third take in this particular chapter. It's got lots of rich ideas that function like a funnel. We're starting with these big ideas, and we're moving closer and closer and narrowing ourselves more and more towards personal impact. And today is the first installment of Personal Impact. I warned you all not to come and you showed up. It's amazing. So we're here. We've got, we've got a very interesting passage to look at today. Now, she was seven years old. She had sandy brown hair. She had big green eyes. She had freckles that swept across her nose and across her face. She had a smile that was broader than her grandpa's barn. And she could kick. She kicked her little four-year-old brother in the shins and then yanked his hair. Now, her mother, when she saw this and interrupted the middle of this hysterical combat between a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, she said, Sally, why did you let the devil make you kick your brother and pull his hair? And Sally said, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. (laughs) So we are looking at spiritual warfare. And the big idea this morning, we've seen two main ideas about spiritual warfare. Remember at the top of the funnel, these main ideas that we need to get down because we need to understand them and see them push themselves into our lives in a very narrow and personal way, which we're going to see today. But the first one is that spiritual warfare is good news. Remember, God has broken the dark alliance. He's broken the bonds of friendship that were formed with the woman and the man when they sinned. He's broken that. He put hostility. He actually put warfare between the serpent and the woman, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And of course, the woman's offspring is followed throughout Genesis, finally leads to the Lord Jesus and then all his brothers and sisters that come with him. And then the seeds of the serpent, though, are sown throughout biblical history, too. And we see these two, as Augustine would call, cities. The city of man and the city of God weaving themselves throughout history. And so spiritual warfare, ultimately, is the greatest, most mortal combat that's going on behind the scenes of the curtain of human history. It's hideous, it's powerful, it's raging. It's behind the drama of human history, behind the curtains. And what we get in chapters 12 and 13 is someone pulls back the curtains a little bit and we start seeing what's going on behind the happenings of human history. Now our second major proposition, our second major idea, is that spiritual warfare is knowing your enemy. And so last week we focused on the beast And beast number one and beast number two, we saw that beast number one is actually a a demon-energized reality of the most focused, concentrated power on earth, which is what? The state, government. Beast number one, made in the image of the dragon. If you'll notice again, the description of the dragon, which represents Satan. And then he has an image bearer. He has a counterfeit unholy trinity he wants to see himself in a counterfeit son and then we have the beast number two which revelation identifies later on and i think chapter 16 and maybe chapter 21 no not 16 talks about the false prophet and so now we have a counterfeiting of the holy spirit so you have all this incredible pictures and images of monsters and coming out of the sea and What we're getting in all these pictures, whether it's the dragon who's trying to counterfeit God by having a false mock creation and calling forth his own image bearers out of the sea and out of the land, and then you get all these wild pictures of each of the beasts, they're all pictures showing or mocking or imitating, counterfeiting the first beast, what the Son of God does and who he is. The second beast the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does. Okay, If we get that, we're going to avoid the vain imaginations of tremendous superstition that seems to be running rampant in many Christian circles and evangelical circles today. Okay? Now, let's start picking up. We're going to look at chapter 12, 7 through 12. And this is our big idea this morning. How does spiritual warfare land in your life? How does spiritual warfare come to your front doorstep? How does it land in our lives? Let's stand for the hearing of God's Word. We're going to look at 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil... for they love not their lies even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. Our great God, we ask for your help as the liturgy marks. We need a prayer of illumination. We need you to work and walk on your word. So Holy Spirit, would you do for us which we cannot do for ourselves? Help us to see the truth in this passage and help us to see the one who is the truth in this passage. Help all of us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Spurgeon suffered debilitating bouts of depression all his life. He likened his bouts of depression to a castle. And he would say that he would enter into this fortified castle and he would be locked inside and couldn't get out. He would describe his sense of despair and depression within this hard, cold castle that it even had darker depths than he thought. In fact, he said this, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's often referred to as the last great Puritan preacher. Some of you probably don't know who he is, but you might have heard of a man named J.I. Packer. Okay, J.I. Packer was in his congregation, and he was his pastor for a while, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He died in 1981, and he said the devil's one object is to so depress God's people that he can go to the man of the world and say, these are God's people. Do you want to be like that? A medieval legend tells of an angel who was sent to strip Satan of his favorite temptations. Here, after much argument, the angel and the devil, the devil finally agreed and submitted to the demands. But he begged to be allowed to keep at least one temptation. Which one? asked the angel. Depression, said the devil. And it was agreed you can have that little one. And the angel left, and Satan stayed on earth, and he snickered and he smiled, and he said, Good, in this one gift I have secured all. We are afflicted at every turn. Conflict without fears and tremblings and tremors within. We are depressed. Who said that? The Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 7, 5-6. One of the major ways spiritual warfare lands in your life, according to this passage, is in this way, by assaulting your soul with acid. Accusations. One of the major ways that spiritual warfare lands in your life this morning is assaulting you with accusations. Let's look at Revelation 12, look, look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And there's the key phrase. The accuser of our brothers. If deception is Satan's bait to get you to bite in sin, accusation is his arrow that bleeds your soul. Now, deception is a bait. And he lures it out there so that we bite it. He's luring deception so that we bite into sin. And then once we bite in into it, Or in other ways, he launches his arrows of accusation, all for the purpose of bleeding your soul. All for what the Puritans would call giving you a dark night of the soul. There are multiple causes of depression. There are multiple causes of despair. There are multiple causes of soul agony, which is historically what it's been called, or soul pain, or dark nights of the soul. Multiple causes. What we're going to do is we're going to look at one major cause, In chapter 12 so those of you that are struggling even now with depression or those of you that have bouted with depression and those of you that know what that castle looks like and you can tell every contour and every crack and every cold crevice and every little slimy insect that lives inside that castle because you know it very well what I want you to hear me say now is there are a multiple multiplicity of causes for depression Do not walk away thinking this is the only cause. But I do want you to know that this is a primary cause of depression. A primary way in which the evil one assaults our soul. And not only that, though there are other multiple causes, what this acid accusation does is it rides like a parasite on the other ones. So though there are other causes that... Cause soul pain or soul sickness or the dark night of the soul, his accusation rides like a parasite and sucks the life out of you. Some of the other causes, I just want to briefly mention so that you're not left thinking again that there's only just this one. Some other causes can be our own sin. The scripture's clear on that. I mean, we're sinful people. In our minds, that means sin affects our minds. We don't think rightly about things. We don't see rightly about things. That's why when you go through the Scripture, there's tremendous metaphors about I once was blind and now I see. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. There's this reality that sin affects the faculty of our understanding and our ability to think rightly about what's ultimately true revealed in the Scriptures. And it also affects our heart. Our heart is like a worshiping faculty. It seeks its greatest good. And it bows down to what it promises promises and holds forth what is greatest life. And then our wills are tainted with sin. And our wills are bent so that our behaviors and our actions, they, they go after what our heart worships. Now, all this reality of sin has a misery effect on us. So there will be soul sickness as a result of sin. Okay? Now there's also being sinned against. We'll call that situational evil or personal suffering. When you're sinned against, when evil is done to you, it has a debilitating, can have a debilitating effect on your soul. Another one is prolonged physical illness. I think we forget today. I think we have more. I know this word's going to, like, what in the world did he just say? Just file it in your words that you know. You know, Hatton's definition book, you bring out some other time that you can check on. Gnosticism. What Gnosticism seeks to do, it's an ancient heresy that works itself and tries to divide the body from the spirit. You know, you've heard the, don't worry about your body. It's a worm motel. It's going to decay. Well, that's a great Gnostic truth. The body, material, the soul, immaterial, are you. (laughs) Distinct, of course, but you. The body will be resurrected. Jesus redeemed the body. Okay? So that's why for many of us, just getting a good night's sleep helps our spirituality. And lack of sleep hurts it. Okay? So a prolonged physical illness can press in the realities of depression or soul pain. Another one is crushed expectations. In other words, we have these ruling, dominating desires that get blocked or stopped. Remember, the heart is a worshipping reality. The heart looks for that which is most worthy to receive satisfaction in life and good and salvation. And sometimes we set up expectations because, as the scriptures describe, our hearts are like an idol factory. We have false idols we're running after, and when they get blocked, it crushes us. So our idols hurt us. Another one is personal failure and rejection, or the fear of personal failure and rejection. You know, we fail miserably, and we're rejected miserably, and we fear that reality. That presses in dark nights of the soul. But notice what the root cause of it is. And I say this not to hurt us, I say this to help us. The root cause is ultimately our worshiping heart is trusting in our performance and the opinions of others to matter. And so if we fail or we get rejected, the soul plummets into darkness. Why? Because its hope has been shattered. Okay? One last one. There's personal suffering. We'll call this situational evil too. We live in a fallen world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You will lose loved ones. There will be brothers and sisters and nephews that have car accidents and die. You will lose temporal earthly good in this life. And it hurts. And it punishes the soul. And this is just some causes. And in most causes of depression, it's a gang of them. But then the one that drives the nail in the coffin is the acid accusations. That's what gets us. And that's what we're going to focus on right now in our remaining time. What is acid accusation? It's taken from The word accuser in verse 10 is actually taken from verse 9, which refers to Satan. It's a derivative of his name, Satan. Satan literally means uh, enemy or evil opponent, adversary. And what accuser does is it comes alongside. It's a a word coming out of Satan or adversary, and it's telling us how he's your adversary. If, If Satan describes your enemy, your evil combatant, opponent, What the accuser is describing is, what's his weapon of choice? That's what the question's asking. When Satan, your enemy, faces you, which does he grab? The Uzi? The serrated blade? Or an arrow? What's his weapon of choice? What is he most trained in? And the word is accusation. Accusations. Accusations literally mean to speak against you, to tear you down. And on this one's most vivid, to tear at your soul. That's his weapon of choice. And that's what acid accusation is. So it's no wonder if you look in the Greek lexicon... There's a word that comes right before it that's in the same word group. It doesn't matter to you, but I just want you to hear that it's from the same root. The word is katefeia, okay? The same root word in Greek for accuser. Now, the word for accuser is kategor. Katefeia, kategor, same root word. You know what katefeia means? It means gloominess, dejection, sorrow that makes one look down. You know what the accuser does to you through acid accusation? He makes your soul look down. Not up. Do you see the picture that's being painted here? The picture being painted in Revelation 12 is that there's an evil prosecutor. And he points his long, bony finger at you. And he's got this wicked smile on his face. And when he opens his mouth, he has these slimy words that come out of his forked tongue and he reads off your lists of sins. And he says, number one, lust. This is for the men. And he says, I don't need to mention all the specific cases to you. If I did, we'd be here all year. Number two, lack of love for God and His kingdom. Oh, you come to worship on Sunday and you sound so good and you sing reverently in your mouth and in your hearts and you leave here and you're cold as ice. And then he lists off number three, refuse to trust God's goodness amidst a conflict with a fellow church member. You didn't move towards him in love. You devoured him in your heart. You were dominated by yourself. So you accused him and tore him down or her down in your heart and then you did it with your words. You were unkind. You weren't building up. You were angry and wrathful. It was on your face. It was on your look and it was in your words. You didn't believe the best. You didn't seek to understand. And now, the accuser goes on, you're harboring bitterness to that person and when you leave, you're now talking to everybody about him or her. Right? Right? Number four, you're ruled by the desire, he says, but but let's use the language you speak of. Let's use your second commandment. Ruled by desire, let's call it what it is. You're an idol maker, and you make an idol out of comfort and peace, he says. You do that, the evil prosecutor says. And that's why, Father, you're passive in your family. You don't interact with your family. You're passive because you want your comfort and your peace. And that's, mother, that's why you lose your cool throughout the week at your kids because you can't stand the gibbering and the jabbering because you want your comfort and your peace more than their good. Oh, he's hitting the mark, isn't he? And this is the only time Satan actually speaks the truth. But then he... Then he continues and he says, you know what, though, you're too bad for grace. Yeah, lust, everybody does lust. Let's not even focus on that one. Let's focus on the hatred you had for that church member and your failings as a mother and a father. I don't get too many cases like that. You're out of reach. You're too far gone for grace. And then he might say something like, God doesn't love you. He doesn't delight in you. You know what you're like. Look at what you think about in the privacy in your own mind. And then he says something like, you're hopeless and you're stuck where you are. God has forgotten you. You'll never move on. How many times do you confess that same sin to him? How many times did you do the same sin? How many times do you really admit it and feel it when you do it? And do you really feel bad about it? You know what? There's a special place for you out of reach of God. Acid accusations. Acid because they burn right to your soul. And you start looking down. Right? When acid accusations hit the mark, you feel the gate to the castle of despair open before you. You feel the familiar walk of the path. You hear the clank behind you. You walk down the familiar stairs and you find your cell with your name on it and you despair. That's what happens when acid accusation hits the mark. Okay. Now, Biblical counselor Ed Welch, when he wrote a book, he wrote a book that's very good. I highly recommend it called Depression, a Stubborn Darkness. And he describes the effects of accusation this way. He says, the only thing you know is that you are guilty, shameful and worthless. It is not that you've made a mistake in your life. It's not that you've sinned. It's not that you've reaped futility, which are true things. It is that you are a mistake. You are sin." You are worthless. Acid accusations. So this is Satan's assault on your soul. And what he gets you to do is all of a sudden your eyes are off God, off Jesus, off grace, off good news, off forgiveness, off his righteousness, off hope, off his help. And on you, you start sinking into self. And what happens is you now are on you. You start looking at your own goodness or your lack thereof and all you're trying to hold on to is your own goodness and whether you can hold it together you focus on your righteousness and hanging on to your righteousness and of course if we do that we're doomed and it's so powerful because there's truth in it you have no goodness apart from jesus you have nothing that's pleasing to god you have no righteousness. And so these arrows are like one side of the arrow is true because it's showing our sin. And the other side is it's an assault to tear you down. Untruth. OK, so what do you do? What do I do? What do you do amidst the assault of accusation? This is how we're going to end. Here's the answer. The answer is crush the assault of accusations with the cross. Crush the assault of accusations with the cross. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The accuser is conquered by the blood of the lamb. It was told, and I'm trying to remember with a faded memory. It came to me last night that when Luther was translating the Bible into German and when he was writing his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, that he felt Satan's presence stalking him like a roaring lion, waiting to pounce on him. In fact, my church history prof said you can go there today because what happened was he felt his presence stalking him so much that he finally, at one time, he grabbed one of his zinc wells and hurled it across the room at him. And it shattered on the opposite wall. And I'm, I'm told you can go to his room and see the black stain of ink where he hurled it at his adversary. That's how close he sensed this reality. Well, one night he was awakened and he sensed the same dark dread standing over him. And the dark dread announced his acid accusations. He started listing off Luther, Luther's sins of the day. And then next he said, how can you call yourself a Christian? How can you, Martin Luther, leader of the Reformation, how can you, listing off your sins for the day, how can you even touch the Word of God, much less translate it into German? You're filthy. You call yourself a Christian, and we both know what your heart's like. And as the stories told, Luther started to waver. And then, he started completing the list of sins that the evil one forgot. He says, no, wait a minute, you forgot this one, this one, this one, and this one. It's a lot worse than you even say it is. And then he lifted high the cross. Over all his sin... And over all the accusations, over everything. Everything. And the dread fled. You crush the assault of accusations with the cross. Okay? Now, I need to prove that to you. If you look at verses 7 through 12, what you're seeing here is a view from heaven of what took place and is summarized in verse 5. Remember, this is one event that's being described from two different views. Most folks commonly, intuitively read this chapter, read Revelation. I mean, the same way that we've talked about how not to read Revelation, you see how it starts creeping in in certain passages. If you start reading this this book of Revelation like it's a timeline or a chronology, you're, you're going to miss it, quite frankly. But if you read it like it's a picture book that's laying out ideas through pictures, it's layer upon layer upon layer. There's not this Western linear timeline thinking in Revelation. It's Near Eastern, circular, idea-driven through pictures. And so what we get in the first part of this is the description of... What Jesus does from earth. In verse 5, it's summarized. We get the gospel truths. We get his incarnation. And then we run to the throne, remember? So the, what's, what's missing in the gospel truths here? Well, the point of this summarization in verse 5 is he goes to his throne. He doesn't even hit the speed bump of the dragon. The dragon's nothing to him. The dragon's waiting for him to come and is going to thwart him. And he goes from birth to throne. Get out of my way. I'm king, and crushes the head of the serpent. So there's the incarnation, but we know there's a perfect life. We know there's a punishing death and we know there's a powerful resurrection and ascension to the throne. Okay, that's verse 5 of chapter 12. That's the view from earth. Now that same event is seen in heaven, 7 through 12, what happens in Jesus' gospel work seen from heaven. And what do we get? We get... Michael, the angel, knocking out Satan and the demons. And they fall from the sky. And you need to remember, this is not the fall from the sky that took place before the garden in the beginning of the world when, when Satan and his demons rebelled against God. This is the expulsion of the accuser from the throne room of God, not the expulsion of Satan and his demons at the beginning of time when they rebelled against God. How do we know this? We know this in many ways because look at verse 10, I believe. It talks about our brothers. For the accuser of our brothers. These are Old Testament saints in heaven, okay? And what we have here is we have this day and night, we have these Old Testament saints in heaven and the accuser of our brothers has now been expelled expelled from heaven. It's a new word, you didn't know that. Expold. E-X-P-U. You got my point. Day and night goes before the throne and before God, charges God's character, attacks God's character, then attacks the saints. Day and night. In other words, it's ceaseless. And our brothers is talking about the reality that they had to live with Satan coming into their presence. Remember, this is a snapshot of Job. Remember in Job, the Old Testament, Job is on earth, God is in heaven. What happens? Satan comes into the throne room of God and attacks God's character and accuses accuses Job before God. And he says, you know what, God? He doesn't fear you truly. He only fears you because you deliver the goods. Take away his goods and he'll curse you. And the accuser comes into the throne room day and night, night and day, accusing the Old Testament saints and saying, you have no business being here. How can you have salvation? How can you have eternal life? How can you have this eschatological life? How can you have any good? How can you partake of anything that's good? You're a wretched sinner. And here's your list of sins. And I know the scriptures better than you, for the wages of sin is death. That's what he says, day and night. And so what we have here is a picture of the accuser going into the hallways of heaven, and he shouts day after day, night after night, where's the death? Where's the death? Where's the death? The wages of sin are death. You don't belong here, sinners. And he says it and says it and says it until the slaughtered standing lamb kicks him out. So the accuser had a good case until the cross. And the cross crushed all the accusations. Because the wages of sin are death. And Jesus took it. And so now, God will not listen to any more accusations. The cross is enough for him. And Satan is kicked out of heaven. Never to accuse the saints before God again. But, woe to you, O earth, because the devil has come down to you. The only ones he can accuse now are you and me. But he knows that his time is short. Right? So what do you do? We're going to have to listen to Satan's accusations for a little while. But when he assaults you, lift high the cross. Amen.